0: now the good fight with yasha monk hi my name is damon linker and i write the subscription newsletter eyes on the right at substack i recently wrote a piece for persuasion titled the red pill pusher now you've all heard versions of the claim people on the populist right saying things like i've been red-pilled when they announce they've been persuaded to disregard liberal democratic laws and norms In The Red Pill Pusher, I write about the man who was one of the first to think and talk this way, a software engineer and tech entrepreneur named Curtis Yarvin. Yarvin developed these ideas from 2007 to around 2012 under the pseudonym Mencius Moldbug at a blog titled Unqualified Reservations. The ideas developed there have gone on to influence major players on the populist right, including former Trump campaign manager and senior White House official Steve Bannon, Fox News host Tucker Carlson, and Ohio Senator J.D. Vance. Now, what does Yarvin teach in these writings? Well, that although it seems like we're free, that we rule ourselves, that we're a democracy, these claims are a lie real power in the country, he insists, is wielded by what he calls the cathedral, elite media and academic institutions that collectively define and enforce what counts as truth and lies, with those distinctions inevitably sliding to the left over time. In my essay, I trace the origins of these ideas back to the ancient religion of Gnosticism, I talk about how they were popularized by the 1999 movie The Matrix, in which the main character learns the shocking truth lurking behind appearances by taking a red pill. And I explain how Yarvin blended these ideas with a political story that has helped to energize and radicalize the right. After all, if the entire system of politics and culture is rigged against conservatives, The right's only hope to make gains must be to tear down the whole system and replace it with a new one. I hope you'll read my piece, The Red Pill Pusher, to inoculate yourself against these destructive ideas and arm yourself with arguments that will help to discredit them in the eyes of our fellow citizens.
1: Damon Linker's piece called The Red Pill Pusher was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community.
2: My guest today is Richard Haas. Richard is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations where he is also my boss, since I'm a senior fellow there. He has served in senior roles in the State Department, including as the Director of Policy Planning under Colin Powell. And he is the author of a number of interesting books, including A World in Disarray and, as of a week or two ago, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. We had a really interesting conversation trying to understand How things unraveled, how the world went from the optimism of the post Cold War period and the relative stability of the Cold War period itself to a moment right now, which feels perilous, chaotic. And then we talked about not the world, but America. How does the United States went from its relative optimism in the 1990s to a much more polarized, much more contentious, much more pessimistic society? And we ended by reflecting on what we can all do to change about that. Richard, in his new book, The Bill of Obligations, argues that all of us can make a contribution to solving this problem by living up to our obligations, not just looking towards our rights. Richard Haas, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you, Yasha. You started arguing a number of years ago in a book that the world is in disarray. How has the world over your career gone from being in some form of array to a stronger form of disarray?
1: I'll answer that, but I will also say that when I published the book, which must now be about a half dozen years ago, the skeptics said I was too negative. And I think in retrospect, the criticism was deserved, except I wasn't negative enough. However, you say disarray plus is where we are. I think the reasons have to largely do with the end of the Cold War. During the Cold War, you had a fairly elaborate, sometimes formal, sometimes informal, explicit, implicit set of rules of the road by which the two major powers managed their relations, avoidance escalation, certain understandings about how to manage competition between their partners or allies and so forth. Plus, it was a world in which you only had, for the most part, not completely, but largely two groupings, so limited the centers of decision-making. You had what was perceived to be uh, not just a nuclear balance, but elements of conventional military balance. So for any number of reasons, the Cold War world, those four decades, was a world of, I would say, surprising stability. And I think nuclear weapons deserve a lot of the uh, quote-unquote credit. Because previous years of history would have suggested that regardless of military balances, sooner or later, great power competition leads to some sort of a conflict. I think nuclear weapons introduced a significant degree of caution. With the end of the Cold War three decades ago, the predictions of optimism, I think, by many, were pretty well off the mark. And if the first challenge of the post-Cold War world happened in the Middle East, as did many of the initial challenges with Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, And the Bush administration, Bush the father administration, of which I was a a part, I was the Middle East guy at the National Security Council, a lot of what we did was based not just upon local intrinsic interests in the Middle East, but this desire to set the precedent that the post-Cold War world would not become a messy place, that the norms and the rest that had governed a lot of the Cold War world would still be in place above all you couldn't acquire territory through force. And that informed a lot of what we did. But I think what we've seen over the last three decades are several trends. One is a much greater proliferation of power. I once wrote an article about non-polarity, or you could call it multipolarity on steroids or stilts. I think that's part of it. All sorts of centers of decision making. So you have more capacity and more hands that were more independent than ever before. You moved away from bipolarity as a well, result. So much more complicated to figure out balances. Relationships were changing. The United States then got overextended and I thought, misguided policies of democratic transformation, particularly in Iraq, ultimately in Afghanistan. We took our eye off the ball. Many other things went on to be a a longer conversation, hopes about how relationships would evolve between the United States and Russia and the United States and China. Things didn't quite work out that way for any number of reasons. This has become a much messier world given the deterioration of relations between major powers, the rise of medium powers like Iran and North Korea with sizable capabilities, and then the emergence of all sorts of powerful global issues like climate change, new technologies like cyber, breakout of infectious disease on a global scale, all of which expose the inadequacy of uh, existing institutions. There's been a institutional adaptation, has fallen far behind global challenges, so this combination of geopolitical revival, distribution of power, institutional failures to keep up, then all the divisions within the United States, which is the subject of some of my more recent writing. This is a fairly unhealthy brew, a worrisome brew of international factors and domestic factors, because one of the reasons the world, over certainly over the Cold War to some extent since, remain relatively stable was because the United States was willing and able to play an outsized role, and that's not clearly the case anymore. So we could go on, but all of this leads to a deterioration of the international environment, and the world in disarray turned out to be directionally correct, though quite interesting. It probably wasn't worried enough.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I think that often happens in certain intellectual contexts. I remember in Late 2016, early 2017, there was a lot of debate about the shape of a Republican Party. And I at the time predicted there was going to be an internal civil war from the party between Trump and some more traditional Republicans, but Trump would eventually win. And I remember being criticized by a lot of people who said, no, no, in the end, you know, Paul Ryan is really going to be in charge and so on. And of course, similarly to how you're describing, I was wrong, but in we have other direction which to say it wasn't even a civil war. Everybody just sort of flonked over and went along so many of the battles in the early
1: post-Cold War period in the Republican Party were between, if you will, traditionalists and the neocons. And for a long time, we thought the debate within the Republican Party was going to be between the realists, who had a more modest view of the American role in the world, and neocons, who had a more expansive view of the world. Little did we imagine that 30 years later, neither one of those groups would have much impact. And as you suggested... The radicals have taken over the Republican Party and realists and neocons alike are sitting in the back seat and no longer have their hands on the steering wheel.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is one of the also always fascinating things about how political coalitions change over time, right? And so political divisions that feel really, really salient in one moment, stopping salient 10 years later, and, you know, you can sort of go back into the past and say, oh, like the political divisions that suddenly feel really important today, where do they come from and where would people have fallen? And Often it's unclear where people who were you know, writing and speaking 10 years ago would fall on them, because those just weren't the debates that were structuring public debate at the time. So your overview of how the world came to be in this array is masterful in its breadth, and I think very convincing, but let me try and push you on a couple of points there. So the first counter-argument made I imagine is to say, look, was the world really ever in as much array as it seems in retrospect, right? When you go through the era of the Cold War, We know it sort of ended with American victory. It ended without nuclear war. We know that really the two key players ended up being the United States and the Soviet Union. But, you know, there was the Cuban Missile Crisis and the world certainly didn't look in array at the time. There was the rise of an online movement, which sort of ended up being a little bit of a semi-story or non-story. It didn't end up being as important. But at the time, people thought it was going to be a really major story. And so was it ever in as much array? And then conversely, you could ask now, well, Is the world in disarray for structural reasons, and it's going to remain being in disarray? Or is there kind of phase shift, right? We're going from one equilibrium that used to be somewhat stable, and hopefully we might reach another equilibrium that's going to be stable, perhaps a long-term, peaceful, militarily competition between China and the United States. And it'll look quite clear that we're in the early phase of that structured world 20 or 30 years from now. But we can't quite see it yet, and so it feels like we're in this chaotic world. But that's just because we're sort of going from one equilibrium to another.
1: So let me take both of those. Was the world of array before the world of disarray? How to understand that? I actually think there was considerable array, in part because you had the whole growth of alliances and also post-World War II institutions that managed the world to some extent economically and so forth, and the Soviet Union essentially set out. It didn't participate in that. The Cold War, in many ways, didn't intrude on a significant piece of the international machinery. You had, you know, the you remember Comic-Con and all that. There was a degree of autarky in the communist world. So the non-communist world has always did its thing with the general agreement on tariffs and trade, ultimately the WTO, IMF, development projects at the bank and elsewhere. So... There was a world of considerable array, I actually think. Now, was there disarray? in it? sure, you had the messiness of decolonization, but actually that was pretty short-lived. And as messy as the Palestine issue was or India-Pakistan, again, things settled down. And the transition to a world of 180, 190 states, it actually happened pretty quickly. And the whole idea of state sovereignty became a very accepted notion. Uh, surprisingly, uh, not quite universally, but close to universally accepted. Sure, you had messiness, but the messiness, you know, the Vietnams and other things were almost cases that took place within the larger world of Array, and it was like you had the Soviets doing certain things in Eastern Europe or the United States doing what it did in Vietnam. These weren't challenges to the architecture. These were messy. I don't mean to underestimate the human or economic or military cost, but these were experiences within the architecture. They weren't challenges to world order, per se, or writ large.
2: But That's not how we were perceived at the time, right? So in Vietnam, the whole justification for the Vietnam War from the American perspective was domino theory, right? That if we let this one state fall, then it is going to completely change the equilibrium. So I take your point there. But again, the world had more array than we realized in a funny
1: sort of way we persuaded ourselves of the correctness of a theory that proved to be incorrect you could pull on the thread and the entire sweater did not unravel look and there were some close calls in berlin and cuba in particular i think those were the two closest calls because those were the two calls which where you had a degree of directness unlike vietnam and the rest you had indirectness the korean war in terms of the soviet union was indirect unlike china but the two cases of directness those were serious the fact that Berlin and Cuba turned out to be peaceful was, I think, had something to do with conventional weaponry imbalances, something to do with nuclear weaponry, and something to do with diplomacy. We had uh, some fairly capable hands on the proverbial tiller at the uh, time. I don't think it was inevitable for structural reasons that either of those turned out the way they did. One could imagine, shall we say, differently in either country, having reached different outcomes. So I think, in that sense, we also were a tad bit fortunate the carnier that it could turn out, well, look, anything's possible. On the other hand, I don't like the trend lines much. In the geopolitical, I see the North Korean problem sitting there but getting bigger. Iran, as much as I'd love to think, we're on the brink of a regime change leading in a, a moderate democratic, formerly Islamic republic, it doesn't seem to be in the cards. Meanwhile, we could well have a crisis over Iran's nuclear capability at some point sooner rather than later. Obviously, we're facing a long war situation in Ukraine, and Russia is, to use the old language of Henry Kissinger, a revolutionary power. It wants to overthrow much of the order rather than operate within. I think China's caught a little bit more. China's a more complicated calculation. It both wants to operate within the order when it suits its purposes, but outside the order when it doesn't. So I think the jury is there out. And also, I think the jury's out because of China. It's hard to know to what extent Xi Jinping is the new normal, and to what extent he's a a 10 or 15 or 20-year aberration? And after Xi Jinping, you could sum Deng Xiaoping 2.0-like leader. So it's a little bit hard for me to project, but I do think geopolitics, hard to imagine we return to the optimism of the initial post-Cold War order. That seems to me to be anomalous. I do worry about the global challenges. Unless there's a massive technology breakthrough that helps us or breakthroughs, I really worry about the consequences of climate. I do worry about some of the new technologies coming on. So I worry about the gap between global challenges and global willingness to come together. And then I think that the biggest question could be the United States. And again, you and I both write from different perspectives about American democracy. But both of us are, I think, worried about it. Your DNA structures you to be more positive than me. I think you tilt in the more optimistic direction. I admire your optimism. I'm always more comfortable in pessimism. Either things turn out badly and I can say I was right or things turn out well and then I can be happy things turned out well. You've got to live with the possibility you're wrong and things turn out to your downside. But no, I do worry. And I don't feel we're out of the woods here. And Even though the midterms had some positive developments, even though January 6th turned out at the end of the day, how would I put it, to be an unsuccessful effort to frustrate democracy and to undermine the electoral count. I don't necessarily assume that January 6th was sui generis or a one-off. And I can imagine politicized violence in the future, and I can imagine continuing dysfunction, gridlock. So I don't feel American democracy is out of the woods.
2: So I want to come back to the United States to defend my pessimist honor. I didn't see myself as an optimist or a pessimist. I was very struck, you know, when I was in grad school, and then in the early 2010s, I was still in grad school by the extent of optimism you had about the future of democracy, right? This is a time when everybody thought you could not possibly have a threat to democracy in a country like the United States, or even in Germany or France. And that seemed to me to be way too optimistic. I'm a little struck in the last couple of years by the extent of pessimism, where the argument has gone from, you know America could not possibly see a democratic failure under any kind of, you know, unless aliens land and, you know, dominators or something, to a world in which sort of we already know that American democracy is going to die and everything. You know, so I think, to me, I've shifted from pessimism to optimism from the same intellectual position, which is, I think, there's some serious risk to American democracy. More likely or not, it'll sustain itself and it'll survive. But we have to take the risk very seriously. But it places me in different camps because the sort of surrounding conversation has changed. But I want to go back a couple of decades, and we'll get to the present, we'll get to America, I promise, because I'm struck through our conversation by how often an important moment you know, we have misunderstood the nature of the world. So we had this brief exchange about Vietnam, right? Very smart people at the time thought domino theory If Vietnam falls. Then that's the beginning of the unraveling. And that clearly, I think you're right. It was wrong to think that at the time. We learned that afterwards, but it was wrong to think that at the time. And by
1: the way, just to interrupt, there were some people who did think that at the time. It's not just that hindsight is 2020. What's interesting about the Vietnam debate is that it was a debate, maybe not in the initial days other than a handful but very quickly, Vietnam became a debate, and history has reinforced that. Anyhow, well, I'm struck by how much it was not consensus very quickly.
2: Often in these moments when the mainstream is wrong about something, or prevailing opinion is wrong about something, there are some people who are right about the matter for the right reasons. It's just that we are often a small minority, and every time it doesn't at all seem obvious to the rest of the participants in the debate that they're the ones who somehow have superior wisdom, right? I had the ironic moment
1: in 2002 and three. When I was in the administration of George W. Bush, and I was, shall we say, a fairly lonely official who was opposed to the Iraq War, and it was quite ironic, not that I was surrounded by colleagues, most of whom thought it was a swell idea, but how many outsiders, including outsiders who were on my quote-unquote political left, who were advocates of the Iraq War. It was a uh, ironic, it would be a generous word, frustrating, and a few other adjectives come to mind.
2: Well, to me, I thought about the Iraq war a lot from a slightly different perspective. You know, I was an undergrad student in England at the time, you know, didn't actually know the United States very well, was a pretty orthodox lefty. And I was, of course, against the Iraq war, as was nearly everybody around me. But I don't know that I get credit for it because I feel like I was slightly against it for the wrong reasons, which is to say that, you know, I didn't take that seriously how awful a person Saddam Hussein was, how awful his rule was. I don't think I engage with the arguments at the right level. Now, I think for people who were against it for the right reasons thought that Saddam Hussein was a terrible dictator and that it would be lovely to be able to turn the Middle East into a set of democratic countries. But that, that was was unrealistic, that it was not going to work, that we were naive in this idea of arriving there and being greeted as liberators and so on. And some people were making those arguments in 2002, 2003, but even a lot of the people who were opposed to the Iraq war were actually making arguments that I think weren't exactly right, probably including me.
1: We can revisit it this spring as the March of this year is the 20th anniversary of the war, so I expect there'll be a little bit of our revisiting. I'll write a piece in March of this year, looking back on the war of necessity, war of choice construct, and kind of I'll look at what I was thinking at the time and what I thought subsequently, and I'll revisit some of those conversations.
2: Well, I look forward to reading that piece. Going back a decade from the Iraq War, so we mentioned the Vietnam War, of course, the other great moment at which the prevailing wisdom, and again, there's many people who punctured that, but the prevailing wisdom proved to be wrong, was the optimism of a post-Cold War period, the period when it felt not only that we were going from a world in array to a world in even more array, <laughs> but that you know the United States would be this sunny hegemon and so on. How much of that failed due to structural factors? Really good question. That's a great question. I think about
1: that a lot. And if I'm a masochist, and I may be a masochist, I don't know, I may one day turn to it in a book. And the word I've used about this was squandering. I think it was a squandering of opportunity. And to use that word, it's a loaded word, admittedly, it suggests that there were not structural or inevitable factors that led from array to disarray, that it was within our potential or capacity 30 plus years ago to have steered history down a different path i lean in that direction now would it have been neat no for the reasons we've already discussed you had a proliferation of capacity and more hands more decentralized decision making i understand those things but i think there's a lot of really interesting questions was it inevitable that the u.s russian relationship would get to the point it is now or was that something about russian political culture? Or might the United States, both in what it did to help Russia economically with Yeltsin or Gorbachev, questions of NATO enlargement, what have you, are there things that we might have done differently? With China, I believe that we were right to let China into the WTO, we can debate the terms, where we clearly got it wrong, was by not adjusting those terms subsequently. And the thinking that just somehow that admission would necessarily change China in in certain ways, I think that we got wrong. And by the way, even though I'm a frequent critic of Mr. Trump's foreign policy, I think when it came to China, they were more right than wrong in recognizing that we needed a serious adjustment. I think that in terms of global arrangements, we were very slow and still are in many areas. I think in talking about what kind of a defense and foreign policy capability we needed, we weren't thinking long-term enough. I remember the frustrations I had in government. I was trying at times to get the Bush 41 administration to articulate Just exactly what did we mean by a new world order? What ought to have been the precepts? And I don't think we did a very good job. The Clinton administration was a kind of holiday from serious foreign policy for eight years. They were more worried about small interventions in Somalia and Haiti than they were about the big things. The one big thing they did, which is NATO enlargement, we can debate. Indeed, I think historians will debate it for a long time. The Bush administration overreached badly in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Obama administration, I think, underreached in 20 different places for the most part. The Trump administration caused real havoc to many American alliances and so forth. So I look at American foreign policy over the last 30 years, I think we got more wrong than right. But it's a really interesting question, the one you asked, and it's one I can't probably do it justice today, Yasha. It's this question of what was structural, because I think it would have been more difficult than many understood just given certain underlying trends and the emergence of certain challenges. But I basically think we took a difficult situation that we probably underestimated the difficulty of, and we made it far, far, far more difficult than it needed to be by all sorts of errors of commission and omission on the foreign policy front. But that, to me, is a really interesting question, and I expect I won't be able to resist one day turning to it.
2: I would love to read your book on this. It's puzzling. It's one of those topics where when you look at the structural factors that were driving this disarray, they seem incredibly powerful. And you start to think, well, could we really have dealt with all of those at the same time? But then you look at sort of the blunders of American foreign policy, and it feels like, well, those are really consequential. I mean, they really seem to have driven this outcome. And so either place you look, it feels like you have a compelling set of causal explanations. Probably the answer is both. I mean,
1: like most things in life, it's not single or simple but my own instinct is it was a more difficult hand than people appreciate at the time and it was played poorly and again it was a combination of things we did and didn't do which is also the case in our personal life you know when we look back at our lives it's if we had mulligans the do-overs and some would be over things we did do and some would be things we didn't do i expect and i would say the same thing applies here in terms of american foreign
2: policy So let me take exactly the same question, but ask it about America domestically, which is to say, again, in the early 1990s, America looks like a self confident country, an optimistic country, a country coming off a decade of economic growth, a country that also feels, in some ways, socially and culturally cohesive, real progress, even for gradual progress towards more demographic inclusion slowly, of course, the 1990s, more inclusion of sexual minorities, you know, there is this optimistic decade where it feels like domestically America is in array, and now it is so in disarray. So how did America go from array to disarray? And I guess the same question is that a set of bad choices by political leaders and others, or where the structural causes of America's unraveling, as George Packer might put it, always there from the beginning.
1: Well, even though you asked the question, I'd love to hear your answer to your own question. My own sense, again, it's a combination of both the structural and what you might call the political in the sense that there was a range of possible policies or decisions or behaviors, and we often got it wrong, again, in acts of omission or commission. But if you think about the last couple of decades, okay, so there were things that increased a disrespect for government and alienation from government. I think Iraq contributed to it. A certain cynicism and alienation Afghanistan, as well two major international enterprises, shall we say, that went very poorly in Iraq. And the added problem that the ostensible purpose for it didn't pan out with the WND. I think the 2007-8 financial crisis had a role. Again, loss of confidence in elites, but also what it did to the housing market, to the American dream there. I think decades of stagnation for the middle class had a real role. Inequality, though, again, I think the problem is less inequality in America that some have gotten fantastically wealthy than it is the fact that many others did not benefit in absolute terms. My own view in American history is people don't mind relative inequality so long as absolute conditions improve satisfactorily. And what we had here was the terrible combination of the two. We had relative positions worsening and absolute conditions were not getting better for a big chunk of the population
2: I've argued this in the past. I mean, if you took the last 30, 40 years economically and you said, look, imagine a world in which the average American would have gotten twice as rich over that period of time, which was the case in previous generations, where we've seen more or less stagnation over the last 30 years. And then let's imagine that, you know, Elon Musk is twice as rich as he is, and Warren Buffett is twice as rich as he is, and so on you know, four times, five times as rich, right? So even more unequal society, do we think that market would be unroved? No, because people would feel that, look, I'm doing so much better than my pounds and the system somehow is working for me, right? If you imagine that the average person would have gotten 25% less affluent over those years, that Bill Gates and so on would have gotten, you know, lost a lot of money. And so the society is a little bit more equal, would that be better? No, it'd be worse, because people would think, oh my god, it's declining. So inequality matters because, you know, you can't grow the pie infinitely. And if all of the gains go to the top, then obviously there's no gains for anybody else and and you get all of those problems. So this is still a problem of inequality under some descriptions, but what really matters is the ability to deliver real improvements to most people. Yeah, You and
1: I are probably in the minority in coming to that conclusion. I think we're right though. Not a popular position, but there you have it. I think that's had a role. So there are economic factors here. I think COVID had a big impact. More recently, I think there's structural. I think social media has had a combination of cable, social media, this combination of a narrow casting in America. And you're as familiar with it as anybody the literature on sorting, S O R T I N G, how increasingly we live separate existences in our own little bubbles or echo chambers in this church, in this school, in this geography, and so forth. And we all watch this station, listen to this AM talk show, watch this cable network have this Facebook group, and that there's fewer and fewer common experiences in this country. Indeed, many more separate experiences. It's one of the unanticipated consequences of ending the draft and having an all-volunteer force. So the lack of common experiences is a big, big deal in this country. And again, you've written about it, I've written about it, but this is a country based upon certain ideas. And if the ideas are no longer shared, where does that leave us? I think that's become the case. I think something I've written about a lot, the lack of civics in our schools, at the high school and college level, is a serious problem. And I think Trump is both a driver of this, but also a reflection of it. Like so many populists, historically, he's a very good room reader. In this case, the room was America. Trump could walk into this room and was quite brilliant at reading the room, and particular, as populists do, of reading the dissatisfaction, reading the grievance all those who resented, and in part because the left often had, over these same years, in many ways moved someone away from a policy of simply opposing discrimination and wanting equal opportunity to wanting to affect outcomes. And what was no longer the left in America, your next book deals with this, quite brilliantly. I can say that because I've actually read the draft. So it's something for all your listeners to look forward to. So the left, if you will, it's interesting that we no longer call it liberal. And that's some ways more revealing than the left realizes, because the left in the United States is less liberal and it is, is much more progressive. It is much more concerned with outcomes rather than necessarily equality of opportunity. And that's also fed the grievance of other parts of the population that feels that they are not being helped equally. So you know, we could go on. It's a long conversation, but I think how we fund our politics has had effect. The weakening of parties. Political parties, almost like travel agents, used to be mediating mechanisms in the consumer space you have it between individuals and businesses. Parties used to play a role between voters and candidates. They no longer do. Every candidate now is his or her own party. They can raise money, they can go on social media, and rather than being moderated, you're kind of independent, and extremism pays. It's a long list of things, but I think the accelerating difficulty of getting things done in America has to do with, I think, more structural reasons than anything else. But I think certain individuals have seen it coming and have taken advantage of it and run with it, and in many ways exacerbated. If John F. Kennedy were alive, there'd maybe be room for a new chapter of Profiles in Courage, a new book, but it wouldn't have as many chapters as I'd like. And I think that a lot of people have just acted for their own purpose rather than for the countries. but the structural changes in some ways allowed them to get away with it.
2: You know, one of the things I'm struck by is that when you try to suss out what is structural and what is choices that market leaders have made, an obvious way of thinking through this is to look at where America is similar to other democracies and where it's not. Now, many other democracies have gone through similar processes, right? I mean, France, Germany, Britain, Australia, they all feel less stable, less in array today than they would have done 20 or 30 years ago. At the same time, there's something about America that does feel particularly dysfunctional. And I say this as somebody who loves this country and is a proud new citizen of this country, that there is a missing center. I don't mean this politically. I mean, this in a broader social way, a cultural way in this country. And you feel it. And, you know, my ears propped up a little bit when you talked about, you know, American elites in a way. And to me, you know, if I'm in Paris, if I'm in Berlin, Elites are always a little bit out of touch with the rest of the population, always a little bit snobby, they always think they're a little bit better than everybody else. That's just a structural feature of what it is to be in a position of prestige or influence to live in the capital of a city to feel like you know, the people who have something to say in the country, you see that everywhere. But there's something about the American elite, what in an essay I've been thinking about in the back of my mind, I'd like to call the influential million, you know, the million people in America, not the 10,000 people, but the million people in America who, you know, live in the right neighborhoods and have institutional responsibility and, you know, are affluent to more than affluent, who really set the cultural and so on life of this country that feels to me dysfunctional. They're often very nice people. They're all of our friends and acquaintances, and we're, of course, part of it. They're often quite civic-minded in a certain way, but it does feel like they have a lack of connection to the rest of a country and a cultural alienation from it that strikes me as being more extreme than what I experience in Germany or France or some other democracies.
1: I haven't heard that articulated before. I think you may have a topic for yet another book. I like the idea of the influential one million. Not as an elitist thing, but simply as an objective statement that these are people who, by virtue of wealth or education or position or what have you, have potentially outsized influence or impact on a society. I'm going to think about it. It's always dangerous to talk while you're thinking about it. But I'm intrigued by that idea that whether by sending their kids to private school or living in certain neighborhoods or moving to certain states, or something I've noticed that the best and the brightest in many cases choosing careers in financial engineering rather than going into public service. It might also be consistent with what we were talking about a few minutes ago. The ability now in this country of 333 or whatever million people to increasingly define your place, not in American society writ large, but in a particular sub-society of America. And we now have created, if you will, enough space for that, and not just geographically, but culturally and economically and socially, So people now navigate a life in a sub-society where they're comfortable. It's almost like uh, we're now a country of uh, millions of gated communities, rather than a single community, if I may stretch an image. And that's interesting to me as a reading of our society. I hadn't thought about it quite that uh, way. So uh, I will think about it. But it reinforces my sense to the extent that you are right. I think you're onto something again, about rekindling civic awareness and a sense that there's a limit to which you can opt out and still succeed or be safe or prosper in every sense of the word, that we are all in this uh, together, like it or not. And that's a really intriguing argument. So I like the idea. And so now that's where several walks around the block to think about.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it's something that's been pottering around the back of my mind, because it's sort of speaks to, phenomenologically, I said, where where I see the difference. There's many similarities between the US and Germany and France, but that's where I feel the difference. Now, in a way, we've naturally arrived at the topic of your new book by talking about America's dysfunction, by talking about the lack of civic responsibility that many Americans seem to have. The book is called The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. So why should we think about our obligations rather than our rights? And why is it that becoming more aware of those obligations is going to help us fix some of the many problems we've been discussing for the past 35 minutes? Since unlike
1: me, you are trained as a philosopher. I'll try to impersonate a philosopher for a minute. It probably won't be convincing. But I think there's both uh, an instrumental and a normative reason for Americans to have a sense of obligation to one another and to their country. The normative one is, I believe, it's the right thing to do. That's what norms are about. It's the basis of many religions. You know, am I my brother's keeper? There's things you look out for others. There's something to be said that we're not on this planet simply to maximize self-satisfaction. We have other purposes on this uh, planet. So some of it is norm, But I think actually even more of it, for better or worse, is instrumental. And it gets a little bit at the conversation we were just having. We will all pay a price. If public education isn't of a good quality, we'll pay a price if public health breaks down. Indeed, we just did. We'll pay a price if the right of public safety is not widely appreciated and respected. So we all have a stake in the efficiency of government, in the welfare of this country. So the collective enterprise will have an impact on ourselves. and It's a little bit of the golden rule. We want to act to others as we want them to act to us. We want our fellow citizens to show respect for norms and show respect for us but if that's going to happen odds are we're going to have to reciprocate so whatever floats your boat in that whatever motivates you whether it's one or the other or both because it's the right thing to do or it's a useful thing to do but i do think you know when i go through the 10 obligations i think there's a collective interest and a self-interest aspect to all of them. And again, uh, I'm trying to get beyond the rights-based conversation. I was, what led me to the book was I was struck how much of our political conversation was simply about rights, as though if we could only nail that perfectly, that that would be the end of all of our problems. And people seem to be unthinking. Rights can come into conflict, which they do every minute of every day, the right of the mother versus the right of the unborn, your right to bear arms, my right to public safety, you know, parental rights. This is what you want your kid to to be taught to what if I want my kid to be taught something else how do we deal with clashing right so you know so much of our conversation is about rights and abridgment of rights real and imagined and it's not that that's not an issue it is it's just that it's necessary but not sufficient and what led me to this book was thinking that we needed also to think about obligations or we would either end up at a minimum in political gridlock and social alienation or worse yet my fear is we will end up being an American version of Northern Ireland during the Troubles. We will have a future in which decentralized, politically inspired violence, which sounds somewhat dystopian to me, but that is not the work of an over imagination. I think we've seen some signs of it, including but not limited to January 6th. So I take that seriously.
2: So what does a bill of obligations entail? What are the 10 key things we should do and perhaps listeners of podcasts can think in their own minds, how do each of us score on that? Do you live up to the 10 Habits of Good Yeah,
1: I thought you might ask me that. (laughs) So what I've done, in addition to the book, I have my Bill of Obligations wallet cards, wallet-sized cards, and I carry it around, and I hand it if you were here, I'd hand you a copy. The most basic is to be informed, as that's the basis for all political participation. Ronald Reagan, who said many wonderful things in the course of writing this book, I read not just the classics, as you would expect, but I read, for example, every inaugural speech, all the farewell addresses, and a lot of other things I'd never read. And, you know, Reagan talked not about the importance of patriotism. He wanted an informed patriotism. He very carefully qualified it. And I think being informed in this day and age has actually become more, not less difficult, ironically enough, given all the information, but also misinformation, Just as an aside, I think it's really fascinating that New Jersey, the other day, became the first state to pass a public school requirement that every student in New Jersey be exposed to courses in information literacy. So you could discern a fact from an opinion or a fact from a misstatement. Where do you go for these things? How do you know? And I think that's great. I think it's actually an important part of a modern-day education. Finland, to use a European country, does the same thing. So I think this is an important movement. I also then argue once you're informed, you want to be involved. You know, what we've seen in recent years on how tight our elections are. Still 40 odd percent of eligible voters don't vote in presidential elections. Fifty five percent of Americans didn't bother to vote in the midterms, as consequential as these midterms were for the future of this country. So political uh, participant voting is obviously not the only form, but it's the most graphic. I talk about certain behaviors, about the importance of being open to compromise. Compromise is not a dirty word. It's what made this country possible at the Constitutional Convention. Some people seem to forget that. But the importance of Congress We've had some examples recently that limited legislation on gun safety showed some uh, commerce, The Electoral Count Act, we saw a little bit of work there. So it's not impossible, but obviously we need more of it. Civility. We've got to learn how to disagree, not simply so we avoid conflict, but you and I may disagree strenuously on the issue of today. But you and I could conceivably be partners on the issue tomorrow. We want to keep open that possibility rejecting violence. I think religious leaders have to step up to the uh, plate here and really do more on this. It also circles back to compromise, something you've written about. One of the important things of compromise is if every issue becomes all or nothing, those who get nothing will begin to feel they have no stake in the system and why not resort to violence? So I worry about that. Obviously, guns have proliferated in this country. So I do believe that we've got to delegitimize the use of force for political purposes in this country. I write about norms. The signature norm of American democracy is the peaceful transfer of political power at the presidential level. Needless to say, that norm took a serious buffeting a couple of years ago. I was glad to see, by the way, in the midterms, most of the losers, not all, but most, conceded with a degree of grace. But that is important to accept many other norms. I talk about promoting the common good. It gets to what we were just talking about. And I think in things like with pandemics and the rest, the obligations, not just for our own health, but others people, and that's not to think narrowly or, or selfishly. I talk a lot about respecting government service and government. People forget there's about 25 million Americans who work in governments. The government's not the other. The government's us at the local, state, and federal level. Obviously, this includes the military. One of the things I advocate for is national service to incentivize national service. I want more Americans, one, to see that things involved in government aren't bad. Two, I also love the idea of national service because it could be a way to break down some of the barriers and some of the isolation in our society. I think it could deliver some common experiences. The ninth obligation is to support the teaching of civics. We need to tell our narrative. We need to pass it on, why democracy matters why it's valuable, what it takes to work, some of the things I write about, you write about. so many people, I think, now associate democracy only with bad things, with mistakes or dysfunction. I think we have to remind people that it has delivered and what it takes and why it's, however imperfect it is, it's still preferable to the alternatives. And then last, I argue for putting country first, before party and before person. I think we had a powerful example of it recently with uh, Liz Cheney. I think we had a powerful example of it with some of the secretaries of state at the state level who stood up to intimidation from people and stood by the electoral process. And sometimes people who put country first refuse to compromise. In other situations, compromising is the way to put country. There's no one size fits all, but it's a mentality. It's a sense of priorities, and it's ultimately up to voters. Again, I don't think human nature is going to change just because I argue about it. It's up to voters to get informed and get involved and then reward politicians who put country for it first and penalize politicians who don't. So I actually think in many ways, it's kind of on us to protect American democracy. And the question is whether we're up to it. I think we can be. And that I'm potentially optimistic, but it won't happen automatically. And that's why I've made the decision when I think about my future. This is now, even though I'm, I'm quote unquote, a foreign policy guy, this is now going to be a part of my life going forward.
2: How do we proselytize these values? So, you know, one obligation that we all have is to live up to these obligations, to these aspirations that you lay out. And I think we can sort of put our own lives under the checklist and say, how are we doing? But of course, just hoping for everybody to have a change of heart may not be enough. So it was also a question of public policy, of passing things that you've mentioned, like some kind of public service. All sorts of things.
1: I mean, the answer is, you're exactly right. good ideas never sell themselves. Good things don't just happen because you and I think maybe they ought to happen. So some things could take congressional action, national service is one of them. In other cases, as I just suggested, voters may vote out of office. Some people who don't deserve the authority might vote into office. Others, we saw a little bit of that in the midterms. Some of the deniers lost. I think religious leaders have a role to play. As I mentioned, preaching things like it's okay to compromise. It's important to delegitimize violence. Civility is always important. I think educators, what happens in the classroom is really important, hence the civics. I think parents, coming back to Reagan again, one of my favorite quotes from Reagan, I'll butcher it here, was about the most important room in the house is the dinner table, the dining room. It's the obligation of parents to talk to their children about certain things and to model certain kinds of behaviors. I think businesses, you know, we've had all this debate in this country about ESG and DEI Last I checked, American businesses have a massive self-interest in seeing that American democracy survives. How well are American businesses going to do if the rule of law breaks down? How much are American businesses going to like it if the Justice Department or the EPA, for example, start politicizing and penalize business executives who give to the other political party or businesses who don't support them? So I think business has a lot more to do. So my answer to your question is these things won't just happen because they're swell ideas. It will happen when various constituencies in this country get mobilized, including ordinary citizens voting that will reward certain behaviors and penalize others. I think too often American politics is left to the most motivated and in many cases are more extreme. And I think the more centrist Americans, more reasonable Americans, more Americans, more civil, more willing to compromise, Need to get more politically involved.
2: I only have a last question for you, but it's a hard one. If 25 or 30 years from now, we look back at this period of time and think, you know what, the world ended up getting into more array than it was in 2023, and America is in much better shape than it was, and perhaps people are living up to the Bill of Obligations, and the country feels more cohesive than it did a few decades ago. What's the story that gets us there? What will have happened in those? Meaning decades that would make us a little bit more optimistic?
1: My grandmother used to say, from your mouth to God's ear, may it happen. I could see in the world, I could see two changes. One would be in both China and Russia, you will ultimately have new leadership that will reject a lot of the tendencies of the current leadership. These things do go in cycles. I think in areas like climate and health, technological breakthrough, just like the mRNA vaccine and Zoom, funnily enough, got us through the pandemic. One medically, one economically and socially. I can imagine technological breakthroughs getting us through climate. This with batteries, this with carbon capture, this with uh, renewables or what have you. It's harder to see the domestic because that's the most human nature. But there it could be everything from what I'm suggesting a kind of bottom up, no single change, but a set of changes, a realization that things really are going off the rails. And you see greater involvement in what our schools teach religious leaders accept some of the responsibility that comes with their position we maybe have some good political leaders though the populism maybe uh, fades a little it burns out a little bit i think you know domestically it's less to come from a decisive single stroke than it is from a number of changes possibly more intelligent regulation of some social media and technology so i think it would be more a basket of things it wouldn't be probably transformational but it would represent an improvement Richard Haas, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great fun, and as always, when I talk with you, I learn a lot.
2: Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be liked, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally,